Uh, Bruce is going to be continuing his series on um, on the Sermon on the Mount, and so we, uh, today's scripture is Matthew chapter five, verses thirteen through sixteen. It's Matthew chapter five, verses thirteen through sixteen. You can find that on page five fifty three in the Pew Bibles. And uh, Bruce's sermon this morning is our mission as kingdom citizens. So won't you stand as we read God's word? Stand with me and and uh, read Matthew five thirteen through sixteen. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we just love you and thank you for... Um, for not only creating us and not only uh, making a way for us to have a relationship with you, but God, that you, um, that you want to use us in your, in your mission and in your kingdom and that we get to be partners with you and to, um, and, and tell people about you. And, um, God, we just thank you for your word that, um, that just lets us know about you and about the world and, um, and how we should live and act and behave and think um, in it. And God, we just uh, know that we don't do that well a lot of the times. And so, God, forgive us of our sin and help us to uh, keep you at the forefront of our mind. Help us to um, really lean into you and lean on you and trust you with everything. And then put that trust and that faith into action. God, we thank you again for being you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a former doctor, longtime pastor in the 1900s in London, England, once said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, She invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate her at first. Now, that is a rather wonderful summary of what we are learning here from Jesus in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5 of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, what we have seen so far as we continue in our series is that if we as Christ followers, what Matthew commonly calls kingdom citizens, if we here who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, we claim to be followers of Christ, we're now part of the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's words, the kingdom of heaven, if we actually embody the beatitudes that Jesus lined out for us, and there's eight of them, and if we begin to model the Sermon on the Mount, the world will take notice. It will not only take notice, but the world will actually take action. In fact, the world, Jesus tells us here, will either hate us for being holy or by means of our godliness, it will actually taste and see that God is good and thus worthy of praise. But I have to admit, it seems the world hates us way more than it is attracted to us. And as we learned last Sunday, this hatred 
inevitably leads to persecution. Jesus tells us in the last beatitude in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everything within me just wants to cry out to God, well, if that's true, then just take me to heaven. Do it now, Lord. Don't leave me here on earth to be persecuted. It's not the blessing that I want. And so, if you're here and you're wondering, why does God, after He redeems us from sin, after He makes us part of His kingdom, why does He not just take us out of this world to heaven? Well, if you've ever wondered that, you're not alone. I certainly have. And here's the question, then, that I want us to answer over the course of the next few minutes. What then is our purpose in remaining in the world after we've been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven? The answer can be summed up in Jesus' missional strategy for kingdom citizens right here in these four verses that Kevin read for us. In fact, Jesus gives for us his strategy for you and I. He gives us the very reason why we are still on this earth. He gives us our purpose in life, our mission, if you will. Notice it. We are to influence the world for Christ. And we are to do it as salt and light. There's a reason God doesn't take you to heaven at the moment of your salvation. Jesus wants you to understand something. As a kingdom citizen, you have a mission... Although your citizenship is in heaven, you're still living here on earth. Therefore, you have a mission on earth. And that mission is to influence the world around you for Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually uses two different metaphors to describe our mission here on earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. And so everything Jesus says in these four verses about salt and light is about our influence. It's about our impact as kingdom citizens in the world. Think about it. The very presence of salt influences what you taste. The very presence of light influences what you see. I like what one commentator, Robert Mount, said. He said, if the Beatitudes leave the impression that life in the kingdom is somewhat passive, Well, the metaphors of salt and light correct such a misunderstanding. Salt permeates and performs its vital function in society. Light illumines the darkness and points people to the one who is the source of all light and life. And so this is Jesus' whole point to us here as followers of him, as kingdom citizens. We are to make a difference in the world as salt and light. We are to influence people who do not yet know Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we are to do it as salt and light. Now, let me just throw out some observations for you, three in particular, about the metaphors that Jesus is using here as salt and light. The first observation is this. Salt and light were two common but critical commodities in the ancient world. Now, today, salt gets... Well, let's be honest, it gets a lot of bad press. Salt is blamed for everything from hypertension to heart disease. And so today, we are concerned about too much salt in our diets 
causing heart disease and too much salt on the roads corroding our vehicles. We also try to minimize the amount of light energy we use. We will actually replace still working light bulbs with more energy efficient ones. And we are constantly, at least I am still, with my 17-year-old, reminding our kids to turn off the lights when leaving the room. But in Jesus' day, however, salt and light were important elements to making life more livable, even more comfortable. Both were certainly available. Both were widely used, but they would not have been taken for granted. For instance, the Romans actually believed that there was nothing more valuable as salt except for the sun. Roman soldiers were even paid in salt. In fact, that's where we get the phrase, he's not worth his salt, comes from. In fact, our English word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which literally means salt money. And so in that culture, in Jesus' day, as soon as the sun disappeared from the sky, precious fuels would even be used to create light. And so our first observation of these metaphors is they were common metaphors or common commodities, but very critical commodities in the ancient world. Number two, the second observation is salt and light indicate that the world is in moral decay and spiritual darkness. That's what Jesus is telling us here. That is the implication by Jesus using these specific metaphors of salt and light. Now, this rubs against us the wrong way, and it for sure rubs against the world in the wrong way. I mean, the academic and political elites of our culture deny this very truth. They say we aren't decaying. They say we're advancing. We're not in the dark. Look how far we've progressed in education, technology, science, medicine, and moral agenda. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The world is decaying, and the world is still in the dark. You don't know the way to God. You don't even know God's ways, especially in the areas such as marriage, family, sexuality, money, life, and death. And so the world is not enlightened, as they like to say. It is in the dark spiritually, and it is in decay morally. And where there is decay, Jesus is saying we need salt. And where there is darkness, we need light. And Jesus says that we, we, here, us, as kingdom citizens, we are God's plan to combat moral decay in our society in spiritual darkness. And so when Jesus tells us, when he calls us, in other words, to be salt and to be light to the world, this wasn't just random. This wasn't accidental. He is actually connecting our mission to the needs of the world. In fact, later on in the book of Matthew, this mission It finds its crescendo in the last words of the last chapter in the same book with what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to go to all the nations. We might even phrase it this way, taking Matthew's words here, or Jesus' words in Matthew 5, to go as what? To go as salt and to go as light into all the world. Third observation is salt and light are what we are as kingdom citizens in the world. I think when we read these verses here that Jesus preached, 
I think we sometimes read it as if Jesus is saying to us, you bring salt and you bring some light to the world. It's almost like you have salt in your pocket and every once in a while you're to take it out and just sprinkle it on a conversation with your neighbor or coworker. Or you bring light wherever you go and every once in a while you're to light a little candle and let it shine. But that isn't what Jesus says, is it? Notice that both times Jesus is very emphatic with what he says. He says, you are. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Jesus doesn't say, just try to be salt or make yourself into light. So this is not a command here from Jesus Christ. It's not a command to be salt or to be light. Rather, it is a statement of fact as to who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, as a kingdom citizen, as one who has been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you now are these things. You are salt and you are light in the world. And we should note that the verb is in the present tense, which means salt and light are not something we become. It's something we are right now as Christ followers. In other words... If you're a Christian, if you are a Christ follower here this morning, the issue is not whether you are salt and light. The issue is what kind of impact are you making as salt and light in the world? So Jesus says you are salt and you are light to a world that is in moral decay and spiritual darkness. Now this, let me tell you, would have been shocking to everyone who heard Jesus' words that day on the side of the mountain. In fact, if you listen real well, you can almost hear the disciples mumbling to each other, really? he's, He's talking about us? How can we be salt and light to the world? How can we? We're just common people. How can we have that kind of impact? How can we have that kind of influence on the world? Now, I don't know about you, but I, and hopefully all of us here, we we should be left with that same feeling. We should be left, even right now where we're sitting, asking ourselves that same question. After all, this is Jesus' strategy for influencing the world for the kingdom of heaven. So let's unpack it a little bit. Let's dive into it and see what Jesus means here in these four verses about salt and light. Number one, our mission as kingdom citizens is you are salt to a world in moral decay. You are salt to a world in moral decay. Look at it again, what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, these words are so famous that they have become a proverb in the English language. If someone is genuine, uh, if they're honest, if someone's just, you know, a good person we might say he or she is the salt of the earth. 
But salt is more than just a compliment we give to someone. Salt, as we've already alluded to, was a valuable necessity in the days of Jesus. In fact, salt served a wide array of purposes in the ancient world. So what did Jesus mean by salt when he tells us that's what we are on the earth? Well, there are two primary uses of salt that deserve our attention that I think Jesus was alluding to here. First of is salt was used as a preservative in the ancient world. It was used as a preservative. In fact, in the ancient days, salt was the most common preservative known to man. In the days before refrigerators and deep freezers, salt was necessary to preserve food. It was necessary to keep it from rotting. Fishermen used salt to preserve their catch. They would spread it in between the layers of fish as a seal to slow down the process of decay. Even in the frontier America, our forefathers depended on salted meat in their journeys across the country. In fact, meats that were soaked in brine or rubbed with salt were, quote, cured and thus were restrained from rotting. And in the same way, Jesus is kind of telling us that we act as a sort of preservative in our morally decaying world in which we live. In other words, here's the implications. Here's the picture. The presence of Christians... The presence of kingdom citizens on this earth is a sovereign act of God's restraining grace. We are the salt of the earth without which the forces of evil would have little or no resistance in the world. In fact, left unchecked, society would quickly descend into a cesspool of corruption. But the presence of Christians in the world Jesus is telling us, acts as a preservative against corruption. It doesn't eliminate it. We know that. But it certainly slows it down. We rub salt into meat to preserve it. And in the same way, Jesus has given us a mission to rub against people in the world so that we may permeate them with our saltiness, which then brings us to a second primary use of salt. Not only was it used as a preservative, but it was also used as a seasoning. In fact, this is probably the most obvious use of salt in both the ancient world and the modern world. And that is, it's a flavoring agent, a seasoning agent. Salt adds flavor, and it makes food taste better. Ever sit at the dinner table without a salt shaker? I mean, it's not a good thing. Where's the salt? Where's the pepper, right? I mean, even Job in the Old Testament asks in Job chapter 6, verse 6, he said, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? We understand that. In fact, this actually seems to be the primary point Jesus makes when he says, you are the salt of the earth, because immediately after that, what does he talk about? about salt losing its flavor or its seasoning. Christians, in other words, are to the earth what salt is to food. As salt makes food taste better, Christ's followers are to influence this world for the kingdom of God. We, here's the picture, we are to be kingdom condiments. We are to be sanctified seasoning. 
We are to add godly flavoring to this bland world in which we live. So then, question. How are we as Christians to be, quote, salty? How does that actually happen? Well, in context of the Sermon on the Mount, being salty is to live out the Beatitudes, which Jesus just told us about. Thus, to be salty is to actually be like Jesus, is to live like Jesus Christ. To be a salty Christian, and by the way, that is good if you're a salty Christian, is to live in such a way that you give people a taste of who Jesus is. This is why Paul even writes later on in verses like Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with what? Salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The Bible even tells us in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So how can more people taste God who are so eager for everything but God? Well, the answer, Jesus is saying, through us. Jesus is saying, listen, you are the salt of the earth. You are my flavoring in the world today. Just as salt adds flavor to bland food, Jesus is saying we, as Christ followers, we are to add zest in a spiritually bland world. Unfortunately, though, it is possible for us to become bland. It's possible for us to become tasteless, and to lose our, quote, saltiness. Jesus actually warns us of falling into such a trap here in verse 13 when he says, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Now, that's somewhat interesting. Actually, it's, it's rather a lot interesting because technically speaking, It's impossible for sodium chloride, what we know as salt, to lose its flavor or taste. So what then is Jesus saying here? Well, you have to understand that most of the salt that was used in Jesus' day was taken from the Dead Sea, which was contaminated by other minerals. And over time, it was then quite possible for this salt in Jesus' day to lose its flavor, to lose its saltiness. And it's the same with us, Jesus is warning us about. Over time, we can become so contaminated by the impurities of this world that we lose our flavor, we lose our saltiness. And when this happens, we are no longer effective at influencing the world for Christ. And so Jesus, in this verse here, he is warning us, at the same time he tells us we are the salt of the earth, he comes back and he says, but here's here's a warning. He's warning us about the danger of becoming tasteless salt or a tasteless Christian. Notice it in your notes here. The danger of this happens because worldliness will diminish your saltiness. Worldliness will diminish your saltiness and thereby render you useless or worthless in your kingdom influence on the earth. 
Now, don't miss what Jesus says next. Because once we lose our effectiveness as salt, notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 13. He says, it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In Jesus' day, when salt lost its flavor, it was just taken out and it was thrown on the ground. Where it would be trodden under the feet of men. Why? Because it was good for nothing. It was absolutely good for nothing. And in the same way, Jesus is warning us here. He's telling us that when we, as kingdom citizens, when we lose our saltiness and cease to function as the salt of the earth, then Jesus says we are, quote, good for nothing when it comes to making a kingdom impact in this world. But here's the good news. The flip side is also true. When we retain our saltiness and influence as salt, then we can make a huge difference for Christ. How much salt do you need to make a difference? This afternoon when you go home and eat, how much salt will you actually put on your plate of food or bowl of soup? You don't put a lot, a lot of salt unless you're crazy. You just put a little bit of salt on, enough to give us some seasoning, some flavor. Just a little salt is all you need to make a difference. Just a little bit will do the job. But we also must remember that salt, listen to me, can never make a difference as long as it stays in the salt shaker. As Chuck Swindoll says, we can't make an impact without making contact. In other words, salt that just sits in the salt shaker does no good for the kingdom of God. So we must get out of the salt shaker and into the world. We have to rub with people. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. This is the first part of his strategy for influencing our world for the kingdom of God. Here's the second part of Jesus' missional strategy. Number two, you're not only the salt of the earth, but he says you are the light to a world in spiritual darkness. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Jesus declares in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. That's what Jesus says. And now in a stunning declaration, Jesus looks at his disciples on that side of the mountain and he applies the same image to them right here in Matthew 5, verse 14, when he says, you now are the light of the world. Think through this with me. When you're in the dark, it's obvious you can't see when you're in the dark. Things are not clear. You trip over little things. You bump into other people. You run into things. You hurt yourself. You can't find what you're looking for. And you easily get lost in the dark. No wonder Paul writes later on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, listen, for you were once darkness. And that's interesting. He doesn't even say we were once in darkness. He actually says we were darkness. For you were once darkness, but now, through your faith in Jesus Christ, he says, but now you are light in the world. And then he gives the command, live as children of light. It's the same command that Jesus is saying here. 
You are light of the world. Therefore, live as light of the world. This is what you are. Light has one primary function, and that is to dispel the darkness. And when light appears, let me tell you, it radiates hope where there was no hope. Many of you know that we take family vacations every year to Colorado. And uh, we go there in the summertime, mostly in the wintertime, to go out there skiing. And uh, if you've ever driven to Colorado on I-70, when you get into western Colorado, it's uglier than the plains of Kansas, which I think are actually beautiful. Right, Bill? Yes. But when you get to eastern Colorado, I mean eastern Colorado, it's ugly. And you're driving this flat and flat and flat. But then you kind of come up and you crest over uh, a plateau a little bit. And at night, and I've done this several times, you can be anywhere from 40 to 80 miles out, depending on how clear the sky is. And you come over that, that plane, normally past Lyman, and at nighttime, all of a sudden, you just see this massive lights shining. And what it is, it's the city of Denver. And you cannot miss it. It cannot be hidden. It is visible to the naked eye for miles away. And that is the same thing Jesus is saying. His whole point of us being the light of the world is all, get this, about visibility as a Christ follower. As Christians, we are to be visible in the world. Listen, God did not redeem us and call us into the kingdom to hide us from the world. And we ourselves, we are not to hide from the world, but rather we are to permeate the darkness of the world. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, flight into the invisible is a denial of our call. A community of Jesus that seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow Jesus. And so Jesus then, what he does after telling us that we are the light of the world, he then gives us two illustrations to explain this. To explain that light cannot and should not be hidden. Look what he says in verses 14 and 15. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. And so from Jesus' perspective here, there should be no such thing as invisible Christians. Rather, notice this in your notes, we are to be as visible as a city on a hill. Ancient travelers didn't have bright lights. They didn't have directional signs. They didn't have paved highways to aid their journey. And so most people traveled during the day. But sometimes the darkness would fall before a traveler made it to the next town. And that darkness would put him in a very dangerous situation. Thieves and robbers waited to take advantage of such vulnerable sojourners. And so let me tell you, when that traveler saw the lights of a city on a hill, it brought direction, it brought hope, and it brought safety. And Jesus is saying, listen, we are called to do that. We are called to be a light in this dark world. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. As kingdom citizens, in other words, we are to be as visible as a city 
that sits on a hill for all to see. But he doesn't stop there with the illustration. He actually gives us a second illustration. It's almost like he knows who we are. We're disciples and we're kind of inhibited by fear, paralyzed by fear of letting the world know who we are. And so he confirms this. He gives us two illustrations. That's this to seal the deal in our minds as to how visible we are to be. Notice, we are to be as visible as a lamp in a house. In verse 14, Jesus says, it's impossible to hide light. And now in verse 15, Jesus says, it's illogical to hide light. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So here's the picture. No one would ever think to light a lamp and then hide it under a basket. I mean, that's just nonsense. I can imagine the crowd just chuckling at such a ridiculous idea. Why? Because the whole purpose of lighting a lamp is for it to do what? Is for it to shine and give out light to the rest of the room in the house. And in the same way, we are to be as visible as a lamp in a house. Therefore, Jesus tells us, and here is the second command in his sermon. The first command that Jesus gave us was in response to persecution. What is it? Rejoice and be glad exceedingly. And now he gives us a second command, which is rather interesting because the first is to rejoice in the face of persecution. And now Jesus' second command in verse 16 is, let your light so shine before men. Now question, where does Jesus say we are to shine our light? Don't make it harder than it is. The answer is in the little phrase, before men. In other words, it is not enough to let our light shine here on Sunday morning when all of the lights are gathered together for corporate worship, as great as this is. And we are. This is a valuable, valuable thing that we are to do. Corporate worship has its place on Sundays. It is valuable for the body of Christ to come together and as lights come together corporately and acknowledge and worship our Lord. But that is not enough. We are to shine our light before men. In other words, we are to shine our light in the world. We are to shine our light where we live where we work, where we play, where we go to school, where we shop, where we drink coffee. In other words, wherever we go in this world, we are to shine the light. So what happens when you shine your light in the world? Because Jesus says, one, it cannot be hidden, and it should not be hidden. One, it's impossible to hide a light, a city on a hill, and it's illogical to even think about doing so. So what happens when you shine your light in the world? Well, there are actually two results. We already saw the first result last Sunday. One result is persecution. Shining your light in this world, listen, it may lead, in fact, Jesus implies that it will lead to persecution. But another result, and this is the focus of Jesus here in these verses, is salvation. 
Some people will see your good works and give glory to God in saving faith. Jesus says, notice it in verse 16, let your light so shine before men. And now he tells us why. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So don't miss this. Don't miss the connection that Jesus is bringing between your light and your good works. So you have your light here. You have good works, and Jesus is bringing it together. And Jesus is implying that the hope of the gospel is made most visible through our good works. Paul asks in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So, yes, we know from other places in Scripture that hearing the gospel is essential for salvation. But what Jesus is bringing out here is that what people hear us say should not be contradicted by what they see us do. We must proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, and at the same time demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ in the gospel. The world should see something in us. And Jesus is specifying our good works, which leads us to this question, well, what is that? What are the, quote, good works that the world should see in our lives? And again, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount here, they are the visible manifestation of the Beatitudes that Jesus talks about. It is our living out also the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The word good here means attractive. It means beautiful or lovely. It's that which is very pleasing to the eye. And when we live out the Sermon on the Mount as kingdom citizens, the world, Jesus says, will take notice. And some will start to taste and see the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And yes, one result is persecution. But another result of shining our light is salvation. Some people will see your good works and they will give glory to God in saving faith. And that's why we are here on this earth. That's why we are still here and not in heaven. Jesus has left us here for that mission years later. And I'm sure Peter was on the side of the mountain listening to the very words of this sermon. And years later, Peter would reiterate Jesus' teaching here when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 12. Listen to what he says. But you, speaking to kingdom citizens again, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, in other words, kingdom citizens, on this earth, but ultimately not our home, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, don't be corruptible. Don't be a diluted Christian. Don't become a tasteless Christian, which wage war against your soul. And here it is. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak 
against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is why God doesn't take you to heaven at the moment of your salvation. You have a mission here on earth. So let's summarize it. My mission as a kingdom citizen is to give the world a taste and a glimpse of Jesus Christ so that God might be glorified through me. Jesus declares, and he declares it emphatically, that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is what we are as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And this describes my mission here on earth. And so let us go. Let us go and influence the world for Christ as salt and light. May we be the saltiest and shiniest group of people around. Ion Keith Faulkner was a Scottish missionary and Arabic scholar in the 1800s who died at the age of 31. He actually won the World Cycling Championship in 1878 at the age of 22. But he would leave all that fame and go to Egypt and later Yemen as a missionary for Jesus. He died shortly thereafter from malaria after being married to his wife, Gwendolyn, for only three years. In the foreword to his biography, Robert Sinker writes of Faulkner, a career of exceptional promise was early closed in the death of Ion Keith Faulkner. The beauty of his character, his ardent missionary zeal, his great learning form a combination rarely equal. His how noble a life his was. So here's the question I would throw out. What is it that would cause a man like this to give it up for the glory of King Jesus and the lost among the nations? What would cause somebody to walk away from his fame and fortune? To go to the nations of salt and light. I suspect suspect it was this conviction that was buried deep within his heart that settled the issue when he wrote in his journal, here's his words, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than a land flooded with light. May that be true of us as kingdom citizens. May it also be true of us that this little light of mine I'm going to let it shine. Let's pray. As you bow your heads and as we contemplate the words of Jesus Christ here, and as you look in your own heart, Jesus calls you the salt of the earth as a Christ follower, but perhaps you realize, you know within your heart, you've lost your saltiness due to worldliness and compromise in your life. As a Christ follower, Jesus says you are the light of the world, but perhaps you know within your heart you're hiding your light due to fear instead of lighting it shine with boldness. Man, if this is true of you, then I want to encourage you to do business with God here in our response time, to confess that to God and seek his forgiveness 
and then receive his grace to influence this world for Jesus Christ as salt and light. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that it would challenge and convict us. Help us to leave here knowing that we are salt and light to the world in which we live. Give us the grace we need to give people a taste and a glimpse of who Jesus is so that you might be glorified through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The instrumentalists are going to play. As they do, I invite you to cry out to the Lord as you need to.